Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Dr. Low Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel. Thanks for joining me. And for all of you who came up and said hi to me this last weekend up in Berkeley at the Ancestral Health Symposium, it was so nice to meet you guys. I had a really good weekend going up there and speaking with Dr. Rick Henriksen all about how medical doctors and naturopathic doctors can work together and how we can really help each other to help our patients. And that was a lot of fun to do that. So, so great to meet so many of you. And then after that, I hopped on a plane. I was there for literally 18 hours, flew down to uh, Palm Springs and went to the JJ Virgin Mastermind event over the weekend, got some really good tips about how to grow the business online and just ways to really help more people. And so it was a blast. Got to hang out with Dave Asprey and Krista, uh, or, uh, Krista Arecchio and Cynthia Pasquella and just a lot of amazing people doing some awesome things online. So it was a really, really fun weekend, and I'm pumped. I definitely have my motivation um, to to do what I do, and that's what it's all about. So, um, so yeah, so you guys know me. I obviously work with patients locally here in San Diego, all over the country as well. If you're not working with a doctor who's meeting your needs, you feel like you really need to just do some digging and find some answers, I would be so happy to work with you. You can learn more about me at drlaurennoel.com um, and also shinenaturalmedicine.com as well. And um, so tonight we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Dan Kalish on the show. I've heard him on several podcasts, got the chance to meet him a few months ago at the Ancestral Health Symposium. Or actually, sorry, that was PaleoFX, I believe. I get them mixed up sometimes. Got to um, talk with him for a little bit, and um, I'm actually going to start working with him myself. So that speaks volumes to him and the reputation he has as a doctor because doctors can't treat themselves. We just can't do it. We need to actually have someone work on us so we can walk our talk. So I'm excited to get into doing that. And so we're going to talk all about neurotransmitters tonight, which are your happy, healthy brain chemicals. will help to keep you feeling good and balanced and your mood balanced. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, depression is not a Prozac deficiency. Just because you're not feeling well, maybe emotionally, doesn't necessarily mean the first choice is taking medication. So there's a lot you can do to educate yourself. There are lots of doctors who can be helpful in balancing this thing out naturally for you. There's a lot of options. So I'm all about on this show, I'm all about you know, uh, empowering you, giving you information so you can make an informed decision about what to do for your health. And so tonight we're going to get a lot of information all about that. Um, also, I forgot to mention, if you didn't hear um, last week's show, I was interviewing Krista Arecchio on how to get rid of candida for good. Candida can be really hard to get rid of, and there's some very effective ways to handle that naturally. We talked about our Candida Cleanse program, and you can learn more about that at candidacleanserights.com. And let's jump into it. So all about Dr. Kalish. He's basically amazing, but I'm going to go through his bio and give you a little bit more detailed information and would also like to hear a little bit of his personal story. Um, Dan Kalish is a pioneer, having developed his own model of functional medicine founded on 20 years of 
successful clinical results, working with over 8,000 patients in his private practice. He's certified over 700 practitioners worldwide in the Kalish Method, which solves patient challenges through a proven lab-based mentorship program, addressing the three areas of hormones, GI, so gastrointestinal, and detoxification. He's trained practitioners from Dr. Mercola's medical staff to Mayo Clinic physicians and Kalish Method functional medicine protocols. He received his BA in physiological psychology and philosophy from Antioch College in Ohio and completed his chiropractic degree in California. He also studied at the University of London and conducted research with biochemist Dr. Robin Monroe at Cambridge University. His studies led him to mentoring with renowned psychiatrist Dr. R.D. Lang using drug-free treatments for schizophrenics. More recently, Dr. Kalish proudly served as an advisor to the Honorable Patrick Kennedy and participated in the first One Mind for Research conference held in Boston in 2011, where 200 of the nation's top neuroscientists gathered to form a united front to promote research on brain disorders. He's the author of two books, The Kalish Method, Healing the Body, Mapping the Mind, and Your Guide to Healthy Hormones, and he's a frequent requested speaker for health summits across the United States and, of course, on podcasts as well. So we are very honored to have him. So, Dr. Kalish, thank you so much for being on Dr. Low Radio. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, of course. It's good to have you. And it's a small world because you actually practice with one of the doctors in my office, Dr. Um, Chad Larson. So we work together um, two or three days a week, actually. So it's kind of a small world. I know, I know that you guys know each other, too. Oh, yeah, from like literally a million years ago. Yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. He's a really great doctor. Yeah, we had him on the show a few weeks ago, um, and he was telling me just how amazing you are that back when you were um, practicing uh, actually out of state, right, you would jump on a plane and see patients. Um, weren't you, like, commuting, like, once a week, something like that? Yeah, yeah. I used to fly to work. For 10 years I did that. That was a little crazy. I'm much calmer now. I was young. Oh, I was young and enthusiastic. Yeah. So you would fly to work and then you'd fly back. And and he he mentioned that you would actually you'd fly to work, you would actually hop on a on a bike and ride your bike to work then, right? So it's even more commuting. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a lifelong diehard cyclist, so I ride my bike whenever possible, even if it involves getting on a plane that doesn't slow me down. I'm still on the bike as much as I can. <laughs> Very inspiring stuff, and yeah, I'm 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 amazed. Your adrenals must be just like diehard <laughs> to handle all that. Well, I meditate a lot. That kind of keeps me going. I I meditate most days for like two hours, so that kind of oh. balances out the crazy overdone part of my life. Right. So I'm curious about that with your meditation. Do you do that in the morning? Do you do it at night? What's kind of your routine with that? I always meditate in the morning. Earlier the better. Yeah. Wow. It's nice to watch the sun come up. That would be, you know, it's ideal. I don't always achieve that, but that's ideal. Yeah. And so I, when we got to talk briefly um, at Paleo Effects, you, you talked a little bit about your personal story, and you, you actually studied with monks, right? Give me a little bit of your, your history with, with all of that. Yeah, so on the, on the brain side of things, when I was 18, I went to Japan, and I lived in a Zen Buddhist monastery with this guy named, a pretty famous Zen master named Harada Roshi. And I, I studied with Harada Roshi uh, for about six months and learned Zen archery and did a lot of Zazen sitting meditation and all that. And then um, came back to the States for a while. I guess I, I went to college, got a college degree and did all that stuff. And then I went back to Asia in my early 20s, 22, 23. And I spent about two years this time 
mostly at a Thai Buddhist monastery in southern Thailand, living with uh, Theravadan monks and uh, the Thai tradition, which was really great, a lot of meditation and studying Buddhist scriptures and stuff like that. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Nepal, in Kathmandu, with a Tibetan monk who was a painter, uh, who does a meditation teacher, but most of the time was in Thailand. And it's what we call mindfulness med- meditation here. Uh, or, you know, it's a, it's a pretty common meditation technique in the States, too. So that was a really great experience. And um, I did never ordain and never became a monk, but a lot of my friends did. And I'm still in touch with some of those people now, even. Mm-hmm. And um, right now I'm doing Taoist meditation. I've kind of changed continents a little bit, uh, changed, uh, you know, focus. But the Taoist meditation is really great, too. It's been a focus for the so, last couple of years. We're obviously talking about neurotransmitters tonight. What kind of effect does meditation have on neurotransmitters? Yeah, you know, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the physiological effects of meditation. That's what I was studying when I was at Cambridge. Um, Cambridge University is unique. It has every publication that was ever published anywhere in the British Empire for all of human history. So it's a great place to research because we got everything. And a lot of the research done on meditation in the brain was, you know, done by uh, uh, people in India, scientists in India. But the British, you know, picked up on all that research. So it's pretty well established. I mean, they started to look at this like in the 1950s, that meditation can have a profound effect on brain waves and and brain function. And it's, um, you know, like the, I think the Chinese have this expression, they call it cleansing the mind. You know, it's like washing your mind out, Um, like you would wash out a pair of dirty socks or something. So you can just, you know, filter and get out all the junk and all the thoughts that are unnecessary and meaningless and, and try to drill down to the core essentials of what we need. And it's interesting because when patients become low in neurotransmitters based on the lab work that we do, mm-hmm. you start to lose control of your brain. You start to think too much. You start to think so much maybe you get anxious. You start to think so much maybe you get depressed. You start to think so much, you get a little obsessive. You want to check the stove 20 times before you leave. You know, you start to think a lot about food. So when our neurotransmitter levels drop, it's hard to calm the mind down. And that's one of the major problems that I think we're seeing with people now in terms of, you know, what we see in practice every day. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, I'm remembering an interesting experience with a patient I had years ago. We did uh, a neurotransmitter panel on her, and she actually... Uh, was a teacher of meditation and yoga so she did this for hours every day and it was fascinating because her neurotransmitters i i do urine testing for neurotransmitters her her neurotransmitters were like all high it was it was so interesting and emotionally she felt very balanced but i mean have you seen that like high neurotransmitters across the board i mean like the the you know like gaba like serotonin dopamine all of them were, were quite high well yeah, I mean, you can. It, it depends on. It can, there's a lot of different variables for that, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely you can. Um, I guess through sort of ecstatic experience, you know, through uh, mm-hmm. invoking really positive things in your brain, you can bring your brain chemicals up. Right. I mean, you can kind of think yourself to being happy, or not think yourself. You can kind of meditate yourself to being happy. Mm-hmm. Right. You can have a physiological impact on your brain chemicals just by sitting quietly and not doing anything. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Had, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, I think you know. 
yeah. I think she had actually been, um, like, experimenting with certain kinds of meditation recently and, like, exactly like you're saying, like, like really trying to invoke a particular um, result. So, yeah, it was just it was fascinating to see that. It was the first time I'd seen that, you know, because usually one's yeah. high, one's low. But to see all of them high, it was amazing. So, so yeah, so what kind of got you into getting into the realm of neurotransmitters anyway? I mean, this is one of, definitely one of your niches for sure. You're well-respected in this area. So, like, what led you into this, this realm? Well, I think it's uh, kind of the plague of our time, you know, is that, well, we're obviously all under stress, and a lot of people have, you know, don't even know what to eat, and there's a lot of problems out there that we deal with in natural health, but there's one thing that's sort of inescapable. No matter how organic you are in your lifestyle and how much you use, you know, green cleaning products and have an electric car and all these things, you know, you can't escape the reality that we all have hundreds of neurotoxins and endodisrupting disrupting chemicals in our body, right? So we're all exposed to chemicals every day just from air, food, water, every source you can imagine. And a lot of these chemicals are neurotoxic and they get into the brain and they start to damage brain cells. And so over the 20, 25 years I've been doing this work, as I look at labs and just sort of track things, we're just seeing a pretty, and, and this is like, uh, you know, backed by even places like the Centers for Disease Control, and they, they do these studies. The latest one they did was called the Fourth Report. So if you Google CDC Fourth Report, it'll pop up our federal government's analysis of the toxicity levels in the American population. And what you see is that there's just a steady increase in even infants now, Newborn babies have 50 to 60 neurotoxins in their body the day they're born. So everyone in the United States now is saturated with various chemicals. And because so many of them are neurotoxic, these chemicals get into our brains and they start to kill, maim, destroy brain cells. And so the amount of brain-related problems that we're seeing in practice has dramatically escalated because of the neurotoxic damage. I mean, you could throw in a bunch of other stress uh, you know, issues like bad diet, not enough protein, bad fatty acids, you know, and all kinds of other stuff like, you know, digestive problems and stress and emotional stress too. But what's guaranteed, even if you have a clean diet, exercise perfectly and do everything else right, is that you've got this neurotoxic exposure. And, you know, when I first started my practice, I was, you know, I've always tested for heavy metals for people, mercury and lead and stuff like that. And we used to get shocked when we saw a really high mercury test and want to jump on that patient and just do everything we could to stabilize them. But now we see basically heavy metal toxicity in every one that we test. There's no, no one's immune. It doesn't matter how clean you are with your lifestyle. They may make it a little bit better. But so I think it's like kind of like the next generation's major health burden is figuring out how to protect the brain, how to get these toxins out or avoid them in the first place, and then how to repair the brain from all the damage that the toxins have caused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the popularity of the brain is definitely becoming more apparent with, you know, the, some of the work that Dr. Krasian's done, a lot of the work you've done. I know with, you know, Dr. Perlmutter with Grain Brain, and there's a lot more of focus on the brain lately, which is really good. So, um, I mean, I know someone listening, they're going, well, shoot, what do I do? I mean, what can they do to actually protect their brain? You know, I mean, what's your, what's kind of your approach when you work with patients in doing like brain restoration, or you know, what, what's kind of your approach with that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's picking the right people, you know, who are motivated. So the kinds of problems they might have would be anxiety, depression, focus, concentration, 
issues, sleep problems, overeating is really common. When your brain chemicals are messed up, you tend to overeat. Um, in kids, you could see anything from autism-related issues to ADD. I was working with a couple of ADD kids earlier today. You know, just the brain chemicals just kind of scrambled. Um, in in Adults in their 30s and 40s, usually it's depression, anxiety, or overeating, something like that. Um, so, you know, if you if you have the brain-related stuff going on, um, or I guess if you don't yet, but you feel like you should just protect yourself, I mean, the first thing you want to do is remove uh, any new exposure to new toxins. So you got to read all the books about, does my lipstick have mercury in it? Is Johnson's and Johnson's baby shampoo safe? The answer to that one is no. You're just rubbing neurotoxins in your poor little infant's brain while you're using baby shampoo. How did, who thought of that, you know? Can you believe yeah. it? They put neurotoxins in a baby shampoo? I mean, I, I can remember the smell of that stuff when I was a little kid. My mom always used that. Maybe that's why I'm kind of messed up now. I don't know. So <laughs> innocent things like baby shampoos or baby pacifiers, you know, can have these chemical compounds that are either endocrine disruptors or, or, or brain-damaging compounds. So you want to get all that stuff out as number one rule. And then whatever toxins are in your system, you want to start to flush out. And so you can see doctors like me and do lab tests for that. And if that's not really your thing, you don't want to do the doctor thing, there's some basic stuff. I mean, the time-tested traditional way of flushing out toxins for all cultures for thousands of years is you just sweat them out, right? You do a sweat lodge, you do a sauna. Um, sweat lodges are kind of hard to build. It's probably easier just to find someone that has a sauna. And you go a few times a week, 20 minutes, start to sweat them out or buy an infrared sauna, put it in your house, and start to you know push the toxins out through sweat. Um, a corollary of that, which is equally important, is that you have to be really well hydrated. Right? You have to have plenty of water in your system because a lot of these toxins are water-soluble, and you can just flush them out by drinking water. Mm-hmm. which is a pretty easy way to detox. Water and sweating. Exercise obviously can help if you're sweating when you exercise. Um, and then, you know, really pretty clean food and staying, you know, physically fit in general because you don't want a lot of body fat because the body stores toxins in body fat. So you want to make sure you don't have a lot of excess body fat hanging around that could be a storage area for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's other basic things like, you know, if your teeth need to be redone, you know, you find the right dentist and you get the mercury fillings pulled out. You've got to do that really carefully. And you want to work with, you know, doctors who know what they're doing because you don't want to have, usually have all the mercury taken out at one time. you got to have the right techniques for that. But, you know, getting the mercury out um, and just trying to reduce whatever your exposure is and then flush out the existing toxins. Now, the way that I do it in my practice is we do lab work, as you know, and we measure liver detox pathways, we measure antioxidant levels, and then we start to pull toxins out in a lab-based program. But you don't have to get that fancy to to do the basics here. Um, And then there's sort of nature's detoxers, right, which is, uh, I guess, what we call vegetables, basically. (laughs) You can't say enough about vegetables. Of all the things, they just, they're like, you know, cruciferous vegetables run certain detox pathways. Green leafy vegetables have antioxidants. They run other detox pathways. Nature's got everything for detox packaged in vegetables. Just got to eat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for you that? guys listening who, it's amazing. I know I'm in love with vegetables. For you guys listening who want to see a biological dentist, there's a good website you can check out for that. It's IAOMT, so IAOM as in Mary, T as in Tom, dot org. 
and you can look for a biological dentist in your area. We have had a, a, a biological dentist on the show, so you guys can scroll back and listen to that with Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He's my dentist. He's amazing. Um, hey, Doc, I'm wondering, what's, um, what's a good infrared sauna that you like? Is there one in particular that you can recommend? You know, I don't know any of the brands. I'm sorry. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm on a hunt for one. So if any of you guys listening, if you have a really good one, send me a message on my uh, website. love to hear about that. So, so let's dive into you know, some of the work you do with patients um, using neurotransmitter balancing. So I have a ton of questions from Facebook. I'll try to just kind of sift through and see if there's any overlap. But um, maybe let's just dive into just some basics. We have talked about neurotransmitters a little bit on a previous show, but I, I'm just curious from, from in your, you know, view of neurotransmitters, what are, what are the main neurotransmitters that you assess for? Um, and then what are maybe like the main roles for each one? Just kind of start with basics. Yeah, so there's 183 some total neurotransmitters, um, but there's one that's in control of everything, and it kind of has a partner that's helping it, so you probably want to think of it as two. So dopamine is the main controlling mechanism for most of the brain chemicals, and then serotonin is kind of its sister compound, because you always need to balance those two to one another. And if you get those two in the right alignment, then the other 181 will fall into place. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then what are like some yeah, of the... Yeah, so it's not as complicated. Well, it is complicated, but it's not as complicated as it could be. Right. No, I like that. Thanks for breaking it down and making it a little more simple. <laughs> I thought you were going to go through all 183. I'm like, oh, no, we don't have time for this. <laughs> yeah, you know, as in many things, you know, nature, nature doesn't mess around. You know, nature has got hierarchies and nature is beautiful and has a whole variety of things but when it really comes down to it you know um nature is very specific in things so yeah two chemicals dopamine is excitatory it's called an excitatory neurotransmitter it gets us up off the couch it's what makes you want to go out and see friends it's what makes you want to go to work and you know do things when dopamine levels are low, people get physically exhausted, and they get depressed, but they get depressed in a sense that they're inactive and they don't want to do anything and they're kind of blah. They're usually not sad. They're usually just physically and emotionally exhausted, and they don't want to deal with people so they can get socially isolated and stuff like that. So dopamine is excitatory. Serotonin is inhibitory, so serotonin calms us down. You know, when serotonin levels are really low, people cry a lot. They just get upset a lot. They get anxious. They just don't feel good. Um, and when serotonin levels come up, people get calmer. They get more relaxed. They might feel like going out just because they're happier, but it's not so energizing as dopamine is. Dopamine is very energizing. Mm. Okay. They complement one another, obviously. You need both. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it's like a like an important teeter totter to balance each other out. So, and you can you can test for this, right? I know you do urine testing, right, to to look at these levels. Yeah, yeah, it's all lab based, all lab based protocols for this. Mhm. Yeah. And That's so, the beauty of it. You uh, can actually see it on a lab test. You're not guessing or wondering what's wrong with the person. You just actually run the labs and you see from there. And I'm sure once patients see their labs, they're they're just so relieved to finally see some data that actually reflects how they feel. It's very, I'm sure, satisfying to see that. It's like, I'm not crazy. There's something that's actually out of balance, right? 
Yeah, I had this patient today. She's like maybe 47, 48-year-old woman, and it was a, a lab test for her son. And uh, they put him on and off Wellbutrin over the pa- in the past, and it's helped a lot with his panic attacks and kind of social anxiety kind of stuff. And we ran a lab, and it just showed like on the test that his dopamine and norepinephrine levels were low, you know. And it's like, okay, well, here's what your kid needs. And it, it happened to match the medications that they've been using. They've been using Wellbutrin off and on. But, you know, how nice to have a lab-based solution. You don't always have to medicate, you know. You can do things that are targeted based on testing. And by the end of the consult, she kind of figured out that she had the problem too, right? So, you know, it's, it's something people feel a little uncomfortable talking about sometimes if they're depressed or they have, you know, history of, of mental health stuff. It's, it's still kind of a little stigmatizing in our culture to, to say that you've been depressed or are depressed. So I think that's part of it. It's just people kind of uh, you know, being feeling comfortable enough with themselves to ask for help. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so um, I, I use I use Pharmacin labs myself for the urine testing. What particular um, lab do you do your urine testing through? I use a couple of labs. So I use uh, DBS labs and another one called Metametrics. Okay. Okay. So then let's say yeah, um, yeah. You just got to find a practitioner that has a lot of experience. That's the main thing, you know. They know how to interpret things and how to run the testing properly and all that. Right, and they all and they are they're all connected. I mean, you have neurotransmitters, and those communicate with hormones. So, um, I mean, I explain to patients all the time. It's like a big web. You tug on one side of the web, the whole thing moves. It's not nothing is is in isolation in the body. It's all connected. So, let's kind of go into that. So, connection with neurotransmitters and hormones. How do they dance with each other? How does this all affect each other? Yeah, so it's an integrated system. It's a neuroendocrine system. Neuro is like nerve cell stuff, and endocrine is hormone-related. So, like, and there's some really simple examples. So, like, for example, your cortisol levels go up, which is a stress hormone, because you're really stressed. That automatically has been shown to lower your serotonin. So if you walk into an office somewhere and someone diagnoses you as being low in serotonin, and they give you either Prozac or they give you a supplement for it or whatever they're doing, you know, you could potentially also have high cortisol. And if you just fix the cortisol, maybe the serotonin would balance out. So there's a really strong stress-depression component, meaning that a lot of people are depressed or anxious because they're stressed. And if you deal with the stress hormone side, the brain actually kind of takes care of itself. And then you can have, this is a really common one, for women, you can have sex hormones slash brain problems, right? Mm-hmm. So I get every month like maybe one patient who's viciously depressed right around her period. Not normal PMS like I want chocolate kind of thing, but like really this is not, my life may not keep going depression, you know? And the rest of the month they're fine. So it's clearly cyclical and it's seeming like a mental health problem because it's incredibly severe and they may have two or three days where they're just down, you know, like not going to work kind of down. And then you fix the dopamine levels and all of a sudden the whole problem just vanishes. So it can go either way. You could have a brain chemistry fix that fixes a sex hormone problem like a low progesterone issue with a PMS patient or you can have a hormone that's out of balance, like high cortisol that's driving the brain chemistry down. 
So generally, you know, you can look at all facets of this. So we do the brain testing, hormone testing, and then create a comprehensive program to address it all. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where the experience comes in because it just helps to have done this for a while. And you don't necessarily have to treat everything at the same time, but you want to see the whole picture so you can make a, a program that's going to be comprehensive work. Right, hence all the testing. So I know from a friend who's worked with you as well that there's um, definitely an interplay between neurotransmitter balancing and thyroid. So, and there's, there's um, from what he's told me, that you know, being able to actually maybe go on less thyroid medication once the neurotransmitters are balanced. So can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, and this, is, this gets kind of tricky, but um, there's, just think about like, in, in like one condition to kind of a, as a reference point, let's say depression. So you could be depressed because your thyroid's low. Mm-hmm. You could be depressed because your brain chemicals are low. And you could be depressed because your adrenal hormones are low. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I guess the trick of all this is to figure out what's the easiest entry point. So do you want to try to fix the depression with thyroid treatment, with brain treatment, with adrenal treatment? What's going to be the easiest way to get things done? And, you know, and sometimes it's really predictable, sometimes not. Sometimes you can tell based on lab work how perhaps extreme the thyroid problem is versus the brain problem. So let's say that you run a thyroid lab and a brain lab, and you see that the thyroid is kind of normal low in the average low range that you always see, but the serotonin and dopamine are the lowest you've seen in months. You know, in a situation like that, you might try to fix the thyroid issue by recalibrating the brain. And then I, I often see the opposite. I often see tests where, let's say, the adrenals are incredibly depleted and the thyroid is just borderline low. We might do an adrenal program and find that that brings the thyroid right back. Hmm. So it's different for everybody. And, you know, I think it, part of the clues happen with how extreme the lab work looks. And then the others are, you know, just a good history and just trying to calculate what's the least invasive, quickest way to fix things. Right. No, it's it's great. It's awesome, you know. And I, I love your approach. We, we we actually practice in very similar ways. And I'm 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 working with you for myself because I can't clone myself. And I I just figure you'd be a really good person to work with. But so really looking at the whole picture, and it's all connected. So let's talk about another example of maybe um, neurotransmitters and gut motility. So you know maybe someone who has real chronic constipation. Is there some sort of maybe brain balancing kind of approach that might help with the motility of the gut? Yeah, all right, this is crazy. So Mm. serotonin, right, is named for what they discovered it does first. Sero means blood, tonin like a tonifier, right? Serotonin has a major role in, uh, you know, controlling the vasculature. It has a really strong role in in creating migraines as well when people can't control their blood vessels and they expand and contract, expand and contract, get migraines and stuff. So it also has a huge role in the gut. So 95%, maybe a little bit more, of your serotonin is made by these enterochromaffin cells, enterochromaffin cells in the gut. It's made locally in the digester tract. Almost all the serotonin in the human body, a really small percentage is made in your brain. Of course, your brain doesn't need a whole lot of it to run it properly. But, and what serotonin does in the gut is it stays in the gut. It's made by cells in your digestive tract, and it controls the contractions, the peristaltic contractions of the intestinal tract. 
So if you have a good amount of serotonin, you'll have normal peristalsis and you have normal bowel movement of two or three a day, depending on how healthy you are, you know. And if your serotonin levels in the gut are really low, you might have a decrease in peristalsis, which could lead to constipation. Mm. Get this, though. Some people have, like, what we call serotonin toxicity. They make too much serotonin in the gut, and then they could get diarrhea, blood in the stool, pain, cramping, alternating with constipation. It's really quite interesting. So we think of serotonin as a brain chemical, but the majority of it exists outside the brain. It's doing completely other things um, outside of controlling the brain function. And this is just one example, uh, or two examples, I guess. One would be peristaltic contractions of the gut. So low serotonin, low dopamine can lead to constipation, diarrhea, IBS, alternating stuff back and forth, all that. And it could lead to migraine headaches because they can't control the blood vessels very well. Um, so there's really a whole variety of things that serotonin can trigger when it goes wrong. I know people listening are thinking, how is it that serotonin makes you happier if it's in your gut? How is that possible? Well, it's made separately. So there's brain cells in your brain inside your skull that make serotonin. They're like little mini serotonin factories. But the serotonin made in your brain never leaves your brain. It stays in there. There's something called the blood-brain barrier. So the serotonin made in the brain stays there locally inside the brain cells, does its job inside the brain. The serotonin you make in the gut doesn't make you happy. It can't get into your brain. So you can make, this 90 plus percent of the serotonin made in your gut never makes it into the brain. It can't, it can't cross the blood-brain barrier. It can't get in, it's kept out. So all the serotonin made in your gut is for an entirely different purpose. It's wild, isn't it? Anyone it's know you are something crazier? When you, take, yeah. when you take an antidepressant drug, right? When you take an antidepressant drug, 80 to 90% of the serotonin peripherally, the serotonin outside the brain, that's stored in our platelets is uh, destroyed. So we use platelets, you know, little blood cell things. So, you know, when, when, when the serotonin is made in the gut, right? It's made in the heart. It's made in different parts of the body. But you have a reserve of serotonin. You get like a surplus of it. You got an abundance of it. And so your body crams it into platelets, which is kind of cool. You got to put it somewhere. And when you take an SSRI, 80 to 90% of the serotonin in the platelets outside the brain is destroyed by those medications. Wow. That's crazy stuff. That means the serotonin outside your gut, I mean, outside your brain, the storage areas for it are depleted by the very chemicals we're trying to use to manipulate it. It's just, wow. That's fascinating. So that's why it's so I know, that one statistic, when well. I read that study, I was like, no way. It's true, though. You can look it up. Google it. You can read all the research on it. It's out there, you know. Well, and then that's why it makes it so hard to get off those medications. You get off the medication, and now your storage of serotonin is, is even lower. Yes, yes. They're highly addictive because they deplete SSRIs, deplete the chemicals that they manipulate. Wow. And they're, now they're not wild. all bad, though. You know, like I had a, a close family member who was locked up at the Stanford psych ward because she was basically, you know, so depressed that she had become psychotic and like she thought that the New York Times was sending her messages and you know what I mean she thought there were cameras that were watching her everywhere and you know I watched her get on antidepressant drugs and they got her better and got her out of there in like a few weeks so for I mean these drugs have a purpose if you have severe depression psychosis 
mental health, disease. I mean, there, there's a role for these medications, but they're not designed for people who are upset because they split up with their boyfriend for a few months, you know? Mm-hmm. They're powerful psychiatric drugs that are designed for psychiatric, you know, psychiatric patients. And for that, they do well, but they don't do well in the way we're using them now. Right. Wow, that's, my mind's blown with the platelet thing. Thanks for that. I love learning new stuff. It's awesome. <laughs> I know. Who would have even thought that you had serotonin in your platelets? But... I had so, no idea. So let's, let's redefine it. So there's, they're really called monoamines. So monoamine means, you know, these are all serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Because when you call it a neurotransmitter, you're thinking, oh, it's only in your brain. But, you know, right. sometimes you're just changing the name of it. So calling it a monoamine, you realize, okay, you can have a monoamine like serotonin in the brain. You could have it in a blood vessel. You could have it in your gut. Dopamine exists in the adrenal glands. It exists in the brain, right? Your adrenal glands make dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine. When we see these compounds in the brain, we call them neurotransmitters. But they're actually made in the adrenal glands, and those are hormone-producing glands. So they're... They're kind of hormones, but they're also brain chemicals. It depends on where they are. Mm-hmm. Right. Fascinating stuff. So I'm going to take it to some of these Facebook questions here. Um, let's see. So, God, there's like so many. Um, so this question is from, let's say, from Amy Fleming. She wants to know, how do neurotransmitters change throughout the menstrual cycle? I know you kind of just touched on that, but maybe a little more detail. How do they change throughout the menstrual cycle? Yeah, so progesterone levels shoot up in the second half of the cycle. Estrogen levels go up in the middle of the cycle and then drop back down. So you've got progesterone and estrogen levels fluctuating. And they're both under the control of dopamine. So it's not really, the question should be asked the opposite way. It's really dopamine controlling progesterone and estrogen, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so, let me, let me back up and try to answer it better, though. So if your dopamine levels are low all the time, and then your female hormone levels drop, then you'll have a crisis. That's the way of saying it, maybe. So in other words, if your dopamine is low every day of the month, and then your progesterone dips really low like it would right before you have your period, that would end up being a crisis, because now they're both low. Mm. Okay. So I'm sure that the people listening are going, okay, well, how do I increase my dopamine? <laughs> if dopamine controls it all, what do I do? Yeah, um, meditate. <laughs> I'm only laughing because it's true. It's not that's not true, but it's not an easy thing to do. Um, what do you want a pill for it, probably? I mean, there's pills you can take for it, too, supplements and stuff. But, you know, don't self-prescribe brain chemical supplements. That's like really risky you'll you'll it's just going to end bad so you just got to find some doctor person that can help you with it that has some experience you don't want to be like the first person that you ever tried doing brain chemistry stuff with what about um any kind of other lifestyle things that people can do so you know any particular exercises or um you know foods or anything like that that can help to boost dopamine or, or even serotonin as well yeah so um they're amino acids uh, you know, serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, they're all made from amino acids. So the best way to do it is, like, I guess it's like two or three things. One is that you eat really good quality protein. 
grass-fed meats, no hormones, no antibiotics, all that kind of stuff. If you're a vegetarian, get good quality protein powders. Mm-hmm. Um, don't try to do it with soy. And then you want to make sure that you can absorb that protein. You can absorb those because protein is broken down in the digestive tract into amino acids. So you might want to make sure your stomach's working well, your digestion's working well. Some people take a little insurance policy out. They'll do some enzymes or HCL to make sure they're breaking their food down well in their digestive tract. Because you've got to not only eat the food and chew it well, but then you've got to absorb the nutrients. Those are the two obvious ways. And then... Seriously about the meditation thing, when, when we're stressed, we burn through more brain chemicals. So like if you're sitting in a car on a freeway and you're stuck in traffic and you're pissed off about it, you know, you're going to be burning up more serotonin and dopamine than if the person right next to you is listening to Adele and rocking out and doesn't mm-hmm. care that she's stuck in traffic for 20 minutes because it's her favorite song, you know? Right. So the Adele listening person is going to be burning less brain chemicals than the stressed out person. So however you can turn off your mind and stop the endless thinking processes that we all tend to engage in, and that could be, I don't know, you could have sex with somebody, hopefully someone you like. You could, have, you could go play golf. You could go to the garden and garden. Whatever it is that you do that kind of breaks that mental chatter so you're not generating thought after thought after thought. That's just, you know, physically exhausting and, and, and sort of traumatizing for the brain. Mm-hmm. It's really a choice. Read. You could read a book, or read a poetry book maybe, not, you know, something that's going to kind of take your brain out of that thinking mode and put it into feeling mode. Fifty Shades of Grey, something like that. I never read that, but I don't know if that was do it or not. I don't know if you'd be as into it as a lot of women across the, the globe. <laughs> maybe, though. Maybe into it. <laughs> okay, back to Facebook. So uh, this question is from Natalie. She wants to know, would adding vinpocetine to my vitamin regimen help my short-term memory? Mm, it's not a bad idea. A lot of people use it. I've never, I've never used it in my practice, but it's not a bad idea. Yeah. I use a little bit before board exams. Honestly, I don't know if I notice a huge improvement, but, but I've heard Yeah, I've never used it. But... Anecdotally, some people really like it. Um, this question is from Izella. She says, I was prescribed chaste trees or Vitex for my depression, which works like a charm. She's wondering if males can also take this. Mm, that's a girl thing, I think. Females only, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a sort of progesterone mimicker kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, that increases yeah. LH, um, but it can also increase progesterone. Okay. Um, and then question from Amy Fleming. She wants to know, who, if anyone, should be taking 5-HTP and tryptophan? Well, you shouldn't take the stuff on your own because it's kind of dangerous and it's hard to regulate what's working and not working. But, um, and in general, the amino acids are always taken together. So you do 5-HTP and tyrosine together because you don't want to boost one of these chemicals and leave the other one alone. So 5-HTP is always taken with tyrosine. Tyrosine is always taken with 5-HTP, always done together. Um, you can use tryptophan. It works uh, in a similar way as 5-HTP, some people actually seem to like it more. Um, when you're in practice, like I am, the 5-HTP is usually easier to deal with because there's a more consistent response to it. But again, some people just try both of them and find the tryptophan seems to work better for them. Um, and I only do lab-based programs. I don't, you know, when I was my maybe fifth year in practice. I was, you know, five years in practice. I was probably 35 years old. I thought it was kind of hot shit. And my teacher, 
my teacher saw me giving people amino acids, and he just shook his head. This is the only time he said anything negative to me, and we had like a seven-year really close relationship. He just looked at me and said, Danny, boy, don't mess with that stuff. You just don't know what you're doing. And so I just dropped out. Okay, Dr. Timmons said don't do this. So I like literally dropped the bottle of stuff. I didn't touch amino acid treatments for my patients <laughs> for like another you know, six or seven or eight years. So, you know, I had to be in practice for 10, 12 years before I even started doing this. I was probably 5,000 patients into my practice. So you don't want to be messing with this stuff until you have a fair amount of experience with clinical nutrition. They're as powerful as any medication. And just because they're non-prescription doesn't mean they don't do stuff. And the power to mess your brain up is, is, is easy. It's shockingly easy. Just to give you one simple factoid, if you take 5-HTP by itself for long enough, you're going to deplete dopamine unintentionally. Just that one simple fact, I've seen people get messed up so many times. You're on 5-HTP for nine years, and they come in and they don't realize that whole time they were depleting their own dopamine and creating a different problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important. And I've had some um, doctor friends, they would prescribe 5-HTP at night and then tyrosine in the morning. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's effective. You don't have to take them at the same exact moment. You just can't be on one for a year and not the other, you know. They have to be balanced to one another. Right, absolutely. Okay, cool. All right, I'm going to take it open to the phone lines here. And if you guys would like to call and ask a question, the call-in number is 818-495-6919, and you just press 1 when you're prompted. So 818-495-6919. We'll just open the... um, the uh, the calls for just a couple minutes here. So, caller from the seven seven zero. I'm going to bring you on first. So, welcome to Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and what's your question? Hi, Dr. Low. This is uh, Lance, and I've been listening to your guys' uh, podcast. And I first have to say that this is really wonderful because it touches on a subject that is close to my heart, which is meditation and mindfulness. And that's kind of, or that is my question. I suffer from uh, chronic pain due to uh, horrible constipation and like a very sensitive gut when it comes to bloating. So I find myself riding around just trying to get my mind off of the pain, but yet it's always there. So it's a constant battle. And I notice that when I don't have pain, my meditation being able to clear my mind is very easily. But when that pain is there, I just feel like this is just never ending battle of like, I can't shut up. I can't stop thinking about it. So what do you suggest for somebody who is dealing with chronic pain, and I'm talking about from the moment you wake up to when you go to sleep, to to meditate and get that mindfulness and get that stress uh, relief that we need in order to help heal our digestive system. Yeah, so it's the, the pain isn't the problem. It's the mind's reaction to the pain. Mm, okay, okay. So, like, for example, when I was in Japan, we had to sit in a full lotus for 40 minutes at a time for 12 to 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's Zen Monastery 101. Full lotus, shut up, sit still. There's a big Japanese guy who's bald with a big stick walking around, and he whacks you really hard if you move. <laughs> so you learn pretty quick. I better not move because the stick guy is going to come hit me. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, how is this going to work? Because have you ever sat in a full lotus for more than like 10 seconds? I mean, it, you're talking about a level of knee pain that's hard to describe. Yeah, it's very, very uh, intense. And, like, and, uh, intense yeah. pain. Like someone's in there yeah. with a hot knife ripping out your knees in opposite directions as they burn them. So yep. what, I, what I learned during that time is that if you get in the right mindset, the pain disappears. 
Mm-hmm. And you can fight mm-hmm. it and fight it and fight it and fight it and fight it and then accept it and then it's gone. And so what I believe now is you no know, pain is very relative and it's our perception of the pain that fuels it to continue. I'm not saying this is easy to do. And this is like no, a 10 no. or 15 year project, right? This is not something you're going to figure out next weekend. But over the course <laughs> of 10 or 15 years, you could probably figure out how to perceive the pain but not respond to it and watch it diminish. Yeah, I've noticed that when I do ride around and I purposely put a smile on my face um, and I just think about all of the beautiful houses that I'm seeing while I'm riding, the pain goes away and then as soon as like my smile stops or I look somewhere else, the pain instantly comes right back. So I guess I guess my question would be, do you have any tips in order to kind of get yourself to that uh that point of acceptance and not necessarily focusing on the pain you just have to practice you know it's just like learning how to play the piano you just gotta practice yeah that's okay. the thing you know <laughs> and, okay. and then what is it that makes you not happy right what is it that takes you away from that pain-free happy state what what pulls you away from that that's the question uh, are you are you asking or are you telling me to ask myself? Well, that? there's no answer to that. That's just like that's what you that's what you ponder. You're like, well, why wouldn't I be happy? I'm pain free all the time. You know, what's pulling me away from this? So you, that's mm. the question you have to sort through. You figure that okay. out. That, you know, in the next ten years. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm definitely going to be working on that as soon as this podcast is over. So I appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call. Yeah. No problem. All right. Awesome. So let's jump back here to the Facebook questions. And this is, um, this is a question from Jenna. She wants to know um, tips for getting off of antidepressants. Um, any kind of um, thoughts with that, Dr. Kalish? Yeah, so you need a team. You need a good psychiatrist who's supportive and going to help you taper off the medication. And you need a good integrative medicine or functional medicine practitioner who knows how to do the nutritional side. It's too much to expect that to be the same person. So we're looking at two people. Yeah. And they need to be able to communicate and actually talk with each other as normal human beings would talk so that they can coordinate your case so you're not, like, bouncing back and forth. And then the psychiatrist will have his or her personal opinions about how to taper and what, you know, speed with which you would taper off. And then the functional medicine person will run the labs like I do and like all the functional medicine docs do, to check the brain and to make sure that you're chock full of all the nutrients you need to make these chemicals so the taper is really smooth. So doing the taper without the nutritional support can be brutal and you know, unnecessarily painful. And then oftentimes you're left at the end of that process you know, without the drug and without the brain chemicals and you're just in even worse shape. So getting the nutritional parameters built back up and then, you know, safely first, you know, obviously you want to build up all the nutrition first. You want to get all the missing chemicals back in the body first and then it's very easy for the psychiatrist to do the taper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important that they speak with you. And you, i got to say this. You can't stop a psychiatric medication by yourself suddenly. Don't do it. It's dangerous. You could hurt yourself. So if you're on an antidepressant and you decide you want to get off of it, don't stop taking it suddenly. You've got to work with someone who can help you with a taper. These medications are dangerous to stop cold turkey. It's not a good idea. Don't just all of a sudden get your natural health hat on and throw your Prozac out. It's really dangerous. Right. Yes. And don't treat yourself. patients, they come in and they, people do that all the time. It's just irresponsible and dangerous. You shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Okay, we're going to open it up to another caller. Caller from the 651. You're on Dr. Low Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, it's Linda from St. Paul. Hi, Dr. Lowe and hey. Dr. Kalish. Thanks for taking my call. Um, so I have um, kind of similar to what you were talking about with uh, um, menstrual depression, um, but it's, huh? it's very fleeting. My, my main problem is that I went off gluten about five years ago, which uh, fixed a host of problems, as you might imagine, and one of them was um, migraines, but I was uh, hard-pressed to get rid of my menstrual migraines. Um, so I started taking um, something called astrofactors, which apparently binds to the estrogen and flushes it out of your system because a nutritionist I was working with thought that that may be the problem, that I was um, highly estrogenic. And um, that seemed to work for a time, but now they're back. And um, I recently took out dairy um, with the hope that that may be a culprit, but um, it's only been about a month. Um, so I was just sort of wondering if you might have any, have any, and, I, and it typically comes with a wave of depression. Like I know I'm going to be getting a menstrual migraine because I'll have sort of an overwhelming sensation that all hope is lost. <laughs> and what time of the cycle is it? Ovulation or before you start bleeding? Uh, before I start bleeding. Okay, so because different it means different things at different times. So okay. Dr. John Lee John, wrote okay. these books called "What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Menopause and Premenopause." I'm actually looking at my original copy on my shelf right now in my office. Okay. So Dr. Lee is the original medical doctor that coined this whole term estrogen dominance. All right. Yeah. And so here's the weird thing. You can be estrogen dominant, but have low estrogen. Oh. So, and I've been doing, I mean, I'm like Dr. Lee now. I'm like the old guy. Like, when I met him, he, I thought, oh, he's 50. He's really old. Like, I'm 50 right now. I changed, I turned 50 last week. So, I'm like the old guy that's been doing this for 25 years. Let me tell you, okay. I've never tested a woman who was estrogen dominant with high estrogen unless she was taking synthetic estrogen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So estrogen dominance. And, and that would be like the birth control pill or something, which I'm not. Yeah, it could birth control or, or um, Premarin or something like that. Okay. So obviously, if you're taking external estrogen in a high dose, you could be estrogen dominant. But if you're not okay. taking a synthetic hormone. Not. You, you okay? Which you weren't, right? No, no. This is a this this is a universal law. If you're not taking a synthetic hormone, if you're not taking estrogen, it's impossible for your estrogen levels to go up. So what he meant, what Dr. Lee meant when he said estrogen dominance, and he was my original teacher when I was, for, when I was in chiropractic college. I used to call him on every new patient. We would talk about every new female patient together. He was a medical doctor, too. He had no business messing with me, but he was very helpful. Anyways, he spent three years training me. So what, what he really meant was that estrogen dominance in a woman like yourself means that your progesterone is low, progesterone your estrogen is low, is okay. low but your progesterone is so much lower that you're having symptoms of estrogen dominance because your progesterone is so low oh. that even though your estrogen is low, it's dominant because they're both down. Okay. So, so right? if I balance so my progesterone... Let me say this one more time. It's in, what's that? So if I balance my progesterone, if I bring that up, will my estrogen then um, come along with it? 
uh, to the proper level? No, but it'll take care oh. of the headaches, probably. Oh, all right. It won't bring the estrogen back up, but it'll change the estrogen dominance problem and probably eliminate the headaches. And do I want to bring my estrogen back up, or do I, is it good that it's low? Well, you don't want it to be high because it's a growth hormone right. and it, tr- it triggers cancer, right? Right. So you don't want to take it. Right. Here's a conundrum. Your estrogen's probably low, but it's dominant, but you don't want to take it. So women who are not, if you're not menopausal, if you're still having a menstrual cycle, you don't want to take estrogen usually because it's a growth hormone that puts you at risk for cancer and all kinds of other problems, right? Right, right. So the way that and we're really careful is you, about like the environmental estrogens as well. I, I mean, I try to be as much as, as possible in terms yeah, of Yeah, can you can see why the estrogen blocker thing you took worked for a while because it temporarily fixed the problem, but really the problem is that your progesterone's low. So you want to bring the progesterone up, have All your right. doctor prescribe some kind of healthy progesterone thing for you. All right. And then if you want to fix the estrogen, you can work on the adrenal glands and fix it through the adrenals. That's the indirect way for women to fix their estrogen. About 40% of the estrogen that your body's making today mm-hmm. is coming from your adrenal glands. And if you fix the adrenal glands, that estrogen will come back from the adrenals, from the stress okay. response being damaged. It'll come back and you won't have the estrogen problem anymore. How do I fix the adrenals? You, read, you can read my book. I talk all about it. And we're giving you guys right, right, like right. a free copy of my book. Great. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so very much. Mm-hmm. You're so welcome. Thanks for calling in. All right. All right, Doc, we kind of flew through like a whole hour. Do you have any um, parting <laughs> words, any little last-minute tidbits, any other nuggets for us? <laughs> yeah, I try to think about your listeners and where they're at, you know, what would help the most. Um, I guess the, uh, you know, here's what I would say. I don't want to be condescending or patronizing, but, you know, read a lot and study a lot and learn all this stuff, but then find someone who's really good at doing this you know, like I read a lot about cars, and I think I know a lot about cars, but whenever I bring my car to a real car mechanic, I'm right like 10% of the time, like 90% of the time, I have no idea what I really, you know, it's like I'm just wrong. And and they just fix it, and I just pay their bill, and I'm like, oh, thank, thank goodness I have Nate, who's my car mechanic, because he knows, you know. So you don't, it's like you said, I don't try to fix myself. You're seeing me as a patient. I have a doctor friend of mine who's my doctor. You know, the more experience you get in this, in this industry, the more you realize you don't want to self-treat. But I'm not against self-education. You, it's fine if you know more than your doctor and you know a lot about what's going on, but then find someone to partner with that can, you know, help design the treatments for you. I, I think that's probably the best thing. Well-educated patients who are, you know, teaming up with a practitioner that they really respect. That's the, the winning combo. Yeah, I mean, I have doctors come and see me all the time as patients. It's, it's, it's just you, you have to have someone guide you through that. So I, I fully agree with that. Awesome. So what's, what's on the horizon for you? What's coming up next for you? What are you working on? Well, we just started a research study last week with the Mayo Clinic. Wow. Which is awesome. So, um, and we, we still need some patients to sign up. So if any of your listeners are interested, We need women ages 38 to 53 who are stressed and want to get better. And uh, Mayo Clinic is sponsoring the whole thing, and they're studying the Kalish method, which is pretty cool. That's amazing. So how are they? You've got to be in Northern California. You've got to be, like, in the Bay Area, too, women in the Bay Area who are interested. And we need another, we have 10 women signed up. We need, like, 15 more to do the study, so. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Is that crazy? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I mean, basically doing a research study on myself. Right. With the Mayo Clinic. That's very exciting. Yeah, that's really, yeah, really, really cool. cool. So we'll have it. We'll, we'll get back in touch when I, when we have the study published and everything. I'll come back and do talks about it and tell your listeners what we discovered with the research. Yeah, I'd love that. So should they reach you on your website about that if they are in that age parameter and they're up in your neck of the woods? Yeah, 38 to 53 year old women. Um, Mayo Clinic's paying for the whole bill. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. You get to work with me directly as a patient. And if you're somewhere near San Francisco area, you know, you could sign up. Yep. So you can email the office. Um, my website is uh, kalishwellness.com, K-A-L-I-S-H wellness.com. You can reach us through there. Beautiful. All right. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your night, Dr. Kalish. Thank you for being my guest on the show, and I will catch you very soon. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Of course. My pleasure. All right, you guys, that's the show. Thank you so much for tuning in and um, love that one. I think that was um, just really important information. And, and, and really the biggest takeaway is please don't take this and then go and experiment on your brain and see what happens. You know, work with someone like myself, work with Dr. Kalish, another you know, functional medicine doctor who's familiar with these kinds of therapies because it's important to have that guidance. Um, you can check me out, drlaurennoel.com. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will check you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.